The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kanesan. Our guest today is Professor Barbara Bennett Woodhouse. Um, she is among the nation's foremost experts on children's rights and has been a Emory Law faculty member since 2009 as the LQC Lamar Chair in Law. Her area of work is primarily child law, child welfare, adoption, comparative and international family law, and constitutional law. Thank you so much for being here, Professor Woodhouse. It's my pleasure. So let's chat a little bit about your journey. I, I know that you are planning to retire soon, so it might be nice to just take a little guided tour along, the, along your path. Okay. Can you tell me how you first got into teaching? I know that you litigated for a while, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, I think what, what first brought me to teaching was... Um, I always liked teaching and I, I, I was a nursery school teacher. So that was a really tough assignment. But uh, when, I was, when I, I was raising my children and I was ready to go back to work full time and I went to law school. And so when I got to law school, um, I loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. But I still maintained that, that uh particular interest in children and children's development and, and, and the way children's lives are lived in societies. So I, I graduated from Columbia in 1983, and I went to clerk for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, which was a wonderful experience. Uh, and I did litigate for several years in New York City, but I had always wanted to teach. And so I ended up going on the market and being hired at University of Pennsylvania, where I was for 13 years. And, uh, and then I was recruited to go to uh, University of Florida to start a, a children's center there, which I did. And after that, I, I was recruited to Emory, which has been a wonderful place to work. And uh, I've continued all, all, all these years, my interest in both um, children's studies and also in comparative law. How did your time as a teacher and raising children of your own impact the way that you look at these issues that you write about? Well, I think uh, my experience as a parent was very relevant because um, before I ever went to law school or even thought of going to law school, because, you know, there were very few female professors in those days or even female lawyers. Um, I had, uh, as I said, I had taught nursery school and I had uh, studied Italian uh, and lived in Italy for several years. Um, and then after I got married, uh, we had our daughter and then we adopted a, a son 
And by the time I applied for law school, I also had a kinship foster child. So I was very much involved. My, my life revolved around, around <clears throat> children and families. And although I loved all kinds of exciting things I was learning at Columbia, <clears throat> I did, uh, I was totally captivated by what is apparently the first uh, program to train lawyers for children, uh, started by Jane Spinack at Columbia, and I was in the first year of that clinic, and that I think really sort of set my path for for my scholarship and for my future interests. You said you lived in Italy for a while, and I know that your recent book, The Ecology of Childhood, How Our Changing World Threatens Children's Rights, I know that that included some of the experiences that you had there and, and drew upon that. Can you tell me a little about that? Yes. Um, uh, I, when I studied in Italy, I also lived with an Italian family. And I was there almost three years and got to be very close to that family. So uh, I think that helped me see how many varieties of family there are around the world and how they differ and how the, the sense of family purpose and responsibility and connection is, is very culturally embedded. Um, so when I, when I had an opportunity as I got further along in my career to do some comparative work, I, uh, I focused on Italy because I was familiar with Italy. I, I could speak the language, I could understand the people talking. And so that made it uh, uh, something of an ideal place for me to choose as in that book, what I'm trying to do, what I have tried to do is compare how developed nations um, structure their, their systems of child and family supports and what does it reflect about the culture of the particular nation. Um, and I, I focus particularly on developed nations because obviously all over the world, there are incredible numbers of different um, challenging situations for children. But as I had been studying uh, children's law in, in a comparative framework, I could see that the United States was in a very different place from most or really all of the developed uh, of the um, you know, OECD nations, um, organization, organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which are, that's, that's sort of the club of the, of the affluent nations. And um, so I got a fellowship with the European University Institute for one of my sabbaticals. And I went there to launch a study on, a comparative study on childhood in the United States and childhood in Italy. Um, my framework for thinking about it was also influenced by, actually by a kind of negative reaction to constitutional law, because I, I'd been very much involved in analyzing and working with and researching and commenting on uh, the constitutional principles about families and children. And I found that the framework for thinking about childhood was very constricted and, and kind of artificial in the constitutional analysis. Um, you know, we have a lot of cases, family is not mentioned 
in the Constitution. I remember teaching con law and saying to my students, family is not mentioned in the, in the Constitution. And one of my students pointed out, well, actually, there's that phrase about um, our posterity, you know, where it's not in the Constitution, but it's in the, I think it's in the Declaration of Independence, um, ensuring uh, the well-being of ourselves and our posterity. But that's about the closest that the Constitution comes, the U.S. Constitution, in mentioning family. And I felt like this was a very, uh, you know, it was a, a constitution of negative rights. Our constitution was full of statements about what you could not do to people. But there was not a whole lot in the constitution about what we were obligated as a society to do for people, for vulnerable people, particularly because they are the ones uh, who who are least capable of uh, at various times in our lives. You know, we're all vulnerable at some time in our lives, and it is as as Martha Feynman says, it's you know the the thing that that is unifying all human beings is vulnerability. Uh, so looking at things from a framework of um, vulnerability, obviously people have many needs and children are a good example of a population that just by virtue of its vulnerability has many needs that have to be met by others. Uh, and from my perspective, we were too focused on the individual family unit and not enough focused on the larger ecology of children. What were the environments? What were the surroundings? What could we do as a society to, um, to enrich those environments and build a, a, a stronger uh, society? So that's kind of why the Italian piece got mixed up <laughs> not mixed up, but why I was combining the constitutional law piece and the child welfare piece and the and the um, the kind of cultural the culture of individualism, which I think is very dominant in the United States as compared to other countries where there's a stronger sense of uh, solidarity. Um, so those were some of the some of the themes that that were motivating me to, to make that particular comparison. Was there anything you didn't expect to find that you discovered through your research or anything that you expected that you didn't find? I think I, I'd also been teaching comparative family law for, for a number of years. So I, I, didn't, I certainly didn't expect to find that every country was, that there was some kind of universal blueprint for the family and that families and children were the same all over the world. That, that I certainly knew. Uh, what did happen while I was studying, um, while I was doing my research for this book, I, I started the research in about 2009 and I finished it in 2019. <laughs> so uh, what happened to really upset the apple cart for me was that just as I was starting this comparative research, the the um, the uh, the Great Recession hit, and it hit both in the United States and in Europe. 
So what I was finding was that the um, the landscape was changing so rapidly because I had assumed I would be studying uh, 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 two countries, one of which was very strongly individualistic and the other more, more attuned to um, solidarity and, and uh, uh, commun- community welfare and things like that. But the crisis, the economic crisis uh, struck very hard. And so I was faced with radical changes uh, in, in what kinds of resources were available to children and families, particularly in Italy, which was hit very hard by the, by the Great Recession. Um, so I ended up spending longer time than I had expected studying this because I was studying not just a comparison that seemed sort of static, but a comparison of two contexts that were rapidly evolving. And, uh, and I, sh- I should say a word about the methodology that, that I have adopted. Um, the methodology that I've adopted for studying families and children is something that I've called echogenerism. And that is the idea of looking at the social ecology uh, surrounding any, it it can be applied to any human being. Uh, It was developed by Yuri Bronfenbrenner, uh, a great theoretical uh, child development psychologist. And um, it, 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 puts the individual in context, in a larger context of family, community, school, um, and then outside influences such as, you know, labor markets and, and uh, the economy, uh, the healthcare system, so that you can look at a child not just as one child in a nuclear family, but a child within a society. Um, So using that approach, I ended up dealing with a a rapidly changing uh, society. And one of the one of the principles of the ecological um, approach to analyzing a, a, a context is that when something happens in one realm of that ecology, it has spillover effects into other realms. So as the uh, as the the economic crisis was developing, it had spillover effects into the resources available to children, into children's parents' unemployment, housing, uh, access to all kinds of services, and they were they were very specific to the different contexts. That was a big unexpected factor. And uh, when I when I completed the book, I completed it and it went to press and it came out in in January of 2020. And I had predicted every possible cataclysmic thing that could happen. You know, I, I, I had a section in that where I was looking at uh, the, the, when, when the title says changing world threatens children's rights. I was particularly concerned with some of the the downsides of globalization, which I could see affecting families in both in both America and uh, and Europe, um, and so I, I had highlighted things that I thought were particularly dangerous, particularly threatening to children's rights, and 
usually when I try and list them, I forget at least one, but uh, uh, one of them was um, rapidly changing technologies and uh, what I call unrestrained capitalism, runaway capitalism, um, rising inequality, uh, not only globally among different nations, but also internally to, to nations that had been reasonably egalitarian. Um, another crisis that I saw was uh, um, the forced migration. So, so many children were caught up in forced migration and that was having effects in both the United States and in Italy. Um, and the, the, so the biggest one I think would be obviously a, a, a war conflict conflict and particularly conflict that was ethnic, racial, religious conflict, but climate change. So I was looking at all of these different things and coming up with thoughts about what, what kind of threats they might pose, but I had not at all mentioned, or I, I, don't, know if I, I, I don't know if I'd even thought of it, even though it now seems obvious, uh, pandemic. So my book comes out and within a month, everybody, everything is shutting down because there's this huge pandemic. And again, if you think back to the categories and the factors that I was looking at, they all played a role to some extent in the, well, both in the fact that the pandemic occurred in the first place, globalization plays a role in that, um, and in the way it was handled in different societies. So uh, since, since the book came out, I've been really focusing and thinking a lot about why certain nations, particularly the nations that were affluent enough to take uh, strong steps, why they did or did not. Or, you know, what were the differences in the way that people in the different countries that I was particularly studying, how had they behaved? Uh, I should go back and say that one of the major things I did in the ecology of childhood, I looked at a lot of data and comparisons and documentation of, of uh, resources for children in different countries and so on. But I also chose two villages that I, I wanted to study and really look at, uh, I use the term a Petri dish. I would look at them in the Petri dish. One of them was this, the village of Scanno in Italy. It's a mountain village in Italy, not about two hours from Rome. And the other one uh, is, a place where I, I was very familiar with because I had a home there, uh, Cedar Key in Florida, which is an island community, um, really remote in, in Florida on the Gulf Coast. And I thought these would be two interesting places to be able to look at some of the details of how children's lives are affected by the context, the social context that they're in. And uh, when I, those two places I chose long before I had any thought of looking at the pandemic and the reactions to it, but Italy has been very different from the United States 
those are two difficult things to compare because Italy is a lot smaller and, and a lot less wealthy than the United States. But Florida and Italy are relatively, you know, pretty close to the same size. And, uh, and so these two little villages, I could look at and, and think about how each village, not only how it was similar to the other and different from the other, but also how now, how it responded to the pandemic. And, uh, and that's the next book. <laughs> I'm working on that now with an Italian colleague who, uh, who is uh, very, very interested in, in pursuing this particular kind of research. So as you're getting ready to retire, you're still planning new research to do, new books to write. Yes. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think I'll always be writing and I'll always be doing books. I also do a lot of, uh, I was a litigator at one point, so I, I've continued to do um, appellate advocacy. So that's something I'm going to be continuing with. Um, at, at Emory, one of the things that that I particularly enjoyed doing, and the Emory students were just wonderful, was I had a project called the Child Rights Project. And, and the students would write appellate briefs for cases, particularly amicus briefs, for cases in which children's issues were not front and center and, and should have been front and center. So my students wrote, um, they wrote wonderful briefs on um, the Affordable Care Act and how it would affect children and youth uh, if it was when it was before the Supreme Court, you know, if, if it was if it was struck down. And they they wrote wonderful briefs and did research on same-sex marriage and how children, either children who were themselves uh, LGBTQ, whatever. And or or children in in same sex families, um, and they did a fabulous job on that. And we actually, I think, influenced. You can see, you can you can hear our brief in some of the oral arguments. So that was very exciting, and another opportunity to think about how a vulnerable population that lacks the kind of voice that some adults have, you know, uh, how that fit into a, a framework for thinking about a holistic way of, of addressing vulnerability and, and building resilience. You were also the co-director of the Barton Child Law and Policy Clinic, right? Yes, yes. When I came to uh, Emory, um, the uh, Karen Worthington, who was the first director of that center, decided to retire. Uh, she decided to retire to Hawaii, where she had family. And so for a period of time, I was sort of the acting director until uh, Melissa Carter came on board. Uh, and I stayed involved with them for a while. But at a certain point, I, I had started a... Uh, 
a center. I had been a co-founder of a center at University of Pennsylvania, still in, in existence. It's the Field Center. And then at, I had founded a center on children and families at University of Florida. And so by the time I got to Emory, I was, I was ready not to be uh, the, uh, I was ready not to have that that as uh, as the sole focus of, of what I was doing. So I remained um, in touch with everyone there, and they they really inspired me. Randy Waldman <laughs> is one of the people that uh, is is constantly inspiring me in terms of her work with uh, with the uh, juveniles and. Um, but that was one of the things that drew me to, to Emory, that there was a strong program and a, and a lot of interest in children and young people. What impact would you like your work to have? I know that's a huge question. <laughs> well, I would really like to move are thinking away from this. The thing that 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 also I, I haven't mentioned this at all, but it was a huge um, influence on me. Uh, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. It, it pretty much tracked my uh, my career in law teaching. It was introduced in uh, nineteen eighty nine and became uh, official in nineteen ninety, and I was always following what was going on there. And one of my great sorrows and frustrations is that the United States is the only country that has not ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, there are a couple of countries that, that haven't done it because they lacked functioning governments, but basically we're the only one. And again, with comparative law, I could see and studied, part of my study was about the difference that it makes to have a charter of children's rights taken seriously that focuses on empowering children, giving them more voice, uh, and thinking about our future as bound up with the future of future generations. That's echogenerism is about generativity, which means uh, generativity is, is from Eric Erickson, and it's the, the idea that the, the most mature um, manifestation of humankind is concerned for future generations. And also the idea that the whole social ecology is going to influence what happens in the future. And if it's not focused on benefiting future generations, there's, there will be no future. Um, that uh, I was one of the things I did was uh, in 2002, I was the head of the ABA delegation to the uh, UN, UN special session on children. And the children there, there were over 300 uh, youth representatives. They were called the U18s, meaning under 18. They did a report and they titled it, A World Fit for Children is a World Fit for Everyone. And I've kept on sort of saying that, that uh, it's like the canary in the mine. When children are suffering, it's almost the first <coughs> evidence that there's something toxic <coughs> about the environment. Um, 
So I, I guess what I would hope is that the research I've done not only, and the writing I've done not only propels us towards a more child-centered and focused on the future, you know, reality of, of what we need to do, uh, and also children's role, young people's role. Um, I mean, in the area of um, climate change, in gun violence, in racial uh, equality. You see young people are the ones who are really leading the way. So I would like to, to see a greater respect and concern for young people and their role in creating a better society. And I would like to see the United States join the civilized communities of the world and ratify the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. I, can't, I wish I could do that with my magic wand. I could wave my magic wand, but it's not happening. And uh, that, those are the things that I most hope to accomplish long-term. How have you seen the research and work and rhetoric in your field change since the time that you first started researching and writing? Definitely. When I went, when I, when I, uh, I, I, as I said, I was in one of the, I think the first um, clinical program training lawyers to advocate for child clients. When I started teaching at University of Pennsylvania, one of the senior faculty said very nicely to me, well, Barbara, what are you doing now? And I started to explain about creating a course called Child, Parent, and State, and we'd be training lawyers to represent children. And he said, what? What? I said, he said, you mean that the lawyer would, would be directed by the child? <laughs> and I, I started on my... Uh, Oh, well, yes, in fact, children are very, they can say, oh, I know. And he, you know, it, with very young children, obviously, you have to use particularly expert methods of, of understanding what it is that, that they want. But the idea of putting the child's view front and center seemed to me very sensible. But he stood back and he said, why? That's malpractice. <laughs> so I think you can see that things have changed because children do have lawyers in court. Uh, increasingly, they're lawyers. They have some representation and some voice. That's been a huge change. Um, and in fact, I think that that is the thing I find most um, hopeful is that children have been children and young people. I wrote, a, I wrote a prior book about um, children as heroes in the struggle for justice, which went into detail about various children and young people over the centuries of American history who had been in the forefront of uh, the fight for justice. Obviously the, the young people in the uh, civil rights movement, the young people in the labor movements, um, young people during the Revolutionary War, you know, many examples. But I think that uh, if anything, we have opened up our minds to the fact that young people have not only a right to speak, but they have a tremendous amount to contribute 
because of their openness and their ability to see past the, you know, the immediate, uh, I'll give you a, a quote from the, uh, I wrote about the newsboys who went on strike. And one of the things the newsboys in, in uh, 1800s, in the 1800s in New York City, they said, we don't have wives and, and kids. We don't, we don't, you know, we can afford to go on strike and we can stick it out because we don't have those other pressures on us. So, I mean, that's, a, that's one example of that. But uh, I, I really, I'm really hopeful that we'll do more listening to children and young people and more, be more responsive than we are now to their stake and their insights and their stake in the future. You spoke a bit about eco-generism. Is there any specific driving force or imperative that really motivates you to do this work and to be so strong in this field? Well, I think the, the, the thing that motivates me uh, about eco-generism is the idea that the combination of, of two principles, one, that everything is interconnected. And there's, there's a massive social ecology, natural ecology, and, and these things are interconnected. So you can't look at something not in context. You have to see the context. Um, so that's the ecology part of it. Uh, and the generativity part of it, or the generism part of it, is, um, is actually not so much about, you know, you can think of the ecological model of looking at childhood, looking at all the things that are influencing childhood directly and indirectly. That's kind of a model. But for me, the other part is the value system, because uh, if, if, you, if you have a value system that says, uh, that, that says wealth is the only measure, GDP, for example, oh, Value system. If if the GDP goes up, everything is good. Yeah, and I, I just don't believe that that should be our value system. I think we should be focusing on the the welfare of future generations, and I include in that the the climate change and the and the planet. That we've got to have. We've got to place a higher value on building a good future than we do on being successful as individuals. So that's, that's sort of how I put the two together. And they are a driving force, because I think, you know, you, every, every, behind every theory is a value system. Um, and that's one of the things that drew me to the vulnerability uh, and the human condition, because the value system there was one of, of building resilience, and creating worlds that were fit for people to live in rather than using and, and wasting resources and clawing our way up the ladder <laughs> to get richer and richer and have more possessions that we could throw away. Um, but that's my little, you know, that's, that's my motivation. And I have grandchildren, so. <laughs> 
I want things to be better for them. I'm very concerned right now about, about the future for my, for all of the children in the world. And that's the other thing I, I like to say is that in an ideal world, a world with the value system that I would want to see, all children are our children. And that in, in my studies of the small communities, one of the exciting things I was finding was even in the small community in the United States, uh, where there's a great deal of pressure for individuality and for individual accomplishment and individual competition, there was a strong sense that all the children in the village were our children. Uh, but if we can get to that globally, we'll be a lot better off. And your work has already been hugely influential. When you look back and reflect on everything that you've done so far, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? And is there anything that you'd like to do more of? I think I, I would like to do, one of the things that I'm looking forward to in retirement is Although I love teaching and, and, and I like, I, I, one of the things that's been so uh, satisfying to me is over the years now, I've been teaching for over 30 years and I have so many students out there in the world doing great things and they stay in touch with me and I get to see what they're doing. And, and uh, you know, I have Facebook friends that were my students years ago. So um, I, I, although I love teaching, I'm ready now not to have the, uh, the stress and the, the demands of teaching. I'm, I'm ready now to have a little more time for myself and a little more time for, uh, for things like, um, oh, maybe I could do some fiction writing. <laughs> I've done a lot of writing where I tell stories about people, but, uh, and I had to defend that as a, when I was first starting out as an academic. It was, you know, I, I one of my uh, articles, one of my first articles had, I had as the frontispiece, a uh, Dr. Seuss cart, uh, illustration. And I had people telling me, you'll never get that published if you, you know, they're going to take one look at it and think, Dr. Seuss? But it did get published, and I think uh, <laughs> um, so. I've done a lot of work to try and make sure that narrative was included in our legal research because it's it's about the human condition, you know. But it would be fun to do a little bit of just plain fiction. No footnotes. Yeah, no more footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about today? Well, um, I just think that our students at Emory have been very lucky because they've had so many, so many influential and important teachers. And I see a bright future for Emory. I think that it has the, the position and the, the, the desire to to humanize a lot of areas of the law. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really interesting conversation. Well, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.